Good morning, good morning. God's grace is enough for us. Man, that's good stuff. Some of the best opening lines of literature. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's the opening line of C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. See if you can guess some of these. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens. All this happened more or less. That's from Kurt Vonnegut's opening line of The Slaughterhouse-Five. And my favorite, Call Me Ishmael. Moby Dick, right? Some of you are good. Powerful lines. There's a bunch I could have shared. I love literature. I love those things that kind of draw you, draw you in. And that's the thing about some of these lines. They, they, they have something that's powerful. What is so powerful about opening lines like that? Anybody have an idea? There used to be a, a guy that I used to listen to when I was on the tractor back in the farming days, when I was a teenager. And uh, this commentator would end his comments with, and that's the rest of the story. Paul Harvey, right? Remember that guy? Some of you younger people are like, who is that person? What is this thing you call radio? What is, what is that? But they, uh, they draw you in, right? You want to know the rest of the story. Now, in literature, we call that like foreshadowing. So you hear this line, and, and you want to know literally the rest of the story. You want to know what's next. It draws you in. And you think, well, that's, that's a literary thing, but actually, it happens in Scripture quite a bit. In fact, it's going to happen today. If you brought your Bible, you've got your smartphone, find chapter 7 of Hebrews. Can you believe we're already in chapter 7 of Hebrews? We're going to look at this obscure Old Testament character we call Melchizedek. So find Hebrews chapter 7. But, but while you're finding that, you know, to me, foreshadowing is so powerful because, again, you want to you know it all. And sometimes you miss it. Like, here we go, nerd moment. In episode 2 of Star Wars, the character Obi-Wan Kenobi says to a young Anakin Skywalker, can you remember what he said? Why do I get the feeling you're going to be the death of me? Totally missed it. If you remember chapter 4, nerds out there, unite. Remember, Obi-Wan is killed. By... Okay, all right, enough of that. But sometimes, sometimes you miss it. And Scripture's not you know, immune to this idea of, of actually giving us a prototype, a foreshadow of what's to come. And remember, we've already seen this. I mean, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, we talked about how Jesus is actually the new and greater Moses. And he was superseding Moses. So Moses was kind of the type or the foreshadow of the person later who Christ fulfilled. He's the new Moses who basically didn't just lead people out of slavery, but out of slavery to sin and death. And so that we've already seen that at work in this, this, this writing already. And today, we're going to talk about this obscure guy that we brought up last weekend, this guy named Melchizedek. 
that, 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 that man that somehow is a type or a foreshadow of who Jesus is. Let's, let's pause for a word of prayer and then we'll get into the scriptures. Father, thank you so much for your word. It gets in deep and it starts to penetrate our souls. And Father, I pray that it would do that today. Penetrate our hearts and souls that we would leave this place changed. Speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're picking up the story. We left off in uh, the end of chapter 6. And remember, the writer already mentioned a couple times this order of Melchizedek. Very strange. And if it's still kind of confusing to you, that's okay. Because it's a very obscure thing in the Bible. Very, very rare that we read about this order of Melchizedek. Let's go ahead and start chapter uh, 7, verse 1. We'll just read it down. And then we'll unpack it for a bit. Remember, the last statement of 6 said, uh, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. And he is, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how, how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a, co a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from the brothers, though these also are descendant from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal man, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, pays, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the whole Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served as the, at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement, of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were, were made such without an oath. 
But this one who was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantee of a better covenant. Highlight that one. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing the office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Who is Melchizedek? Where does this guy come from? Some of you, you know, Bible scholars out there will, will have recognized the name, but it's kind of an obscure spot in Scripture. So if you have your Bible handy and you really want to seek this out, you got to find him. I think it's Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, we meet this guy. And he, uh, he had this pretty big battle. And Abraham goes out, and I didn't even know. I mean, it's one of those things in Scripture where I guess just people back then knew how to fight wars. I don't know. I mean, I don't have the first clue. They wouldn't take me in the army because I had asthma when I was in high school. Some of you fought in the military. I don't know how that's done. To me, that requires training. Abraham apparently knew how to fight. Maybe that's just what you did back in the day. And he, he, he won this big battle. Battle was won. And, and so on the, on the way back from battle, this guy, Melchizedek, meets him. And, and Abraham gives him you know, a tenth or a tithe of the spoils of war. So, you know, when you lost a war, you lost a battle, you know, all your stuff gets taken. You know, your iPad, all that stuff gets taken. And so a tenth of that stuff, you know, this guy Melchizedek received from Abraham. Again, he just kind of shows up. Now, there is speculation, Right? If you, if you read the commentary, and by the way, it's, it's amazing as we've gone through this series, the, 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 the comments on some of these sections in Hebrew just will overwhelm you. I mean, I could show you some of the research that I've already done. It's just like page after page because there's speculation on some of this. Melchizedek, some commentators say, oh, he, he was really Jesus back in the day. Well, I don't know about that. And some would say, well, he was like an angel. You know, because they talk about this kind of priest forever. There's this kind of eternal thing said about him. So there's a lot of speculation about who this guy is. But we are told he was the king of Salem. Now, some would say, well, this has to be Jerusalem. Well, we don't really totally know exactly where he's at. Could be, which would be kind of interesting, right? It's interesting how when you follow the storyline of the Bible, we keep winding up in some of the same places. I think it's the the Celtics, that, that used to, 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 to say that there are some points on the earth where the, 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 the membrane between 
heaven and earth are close. There are some Native American myths that talk about the nearness between the two realms. And it's interesting where, I, I don't know, this, this could be one of those places where, again, we see over and over this long history. And so this Melchizedek guy, he was clearly a real person. He was a king, but it looks like he also kind of did some priestly stuff. There was some overlap there, king and, and priest. And he was a priest of the Most High God. Now, here's what's weird about this whole thing. Well, there's lots of things that I, I have lots of questions. When I, when I cross over to heaven, and whatever that's going to look like, I've got lots of questions. And this is probably one of those questions. Okay, God, who was this guy? Tell me his pedigree. Where did he study? Where did he go to seminary? We don't know. But this was before all of the nation of Israel. It's before the law. So, like, Abraham giving him a tenth wasn't even, like, required. It was just like, well, won this great battle, and certainly Abraham and God had a relationship. We know that. But this guy Melchizedek, it said he is the priest of the Most High God. So Melchizedek had a relationship with God, much like Abraham, but we're, we find out that Abraham was actually lesser. Remember, we've seen this over and over again. This is true with Hebrew literature. One of the ways that they would uh, make a case or make an argument is they would go from lesser to greater. And we're seeing this all over again right here. So the lesser would be, in this case, Abraham. Now, if you were a good boy and girl back in the first century and you grew up in the Jewish world, you don't diss on Moses and you don't diss on Abraham. Those are pretty key people in the story of Scripture. So here is the writer saying, no, 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 no. Actually, Jesus is greater than Melchizedek, who was greater than Abraham. You see that kind of flow of the lesser to greater. So we're kind of stepping on toes here. And I don't realize we're, we're reading this from the, you know, our century. And so there's a lot we don't know about our century. But back then, you wouldn't, you wouldn't discount Abraham. But Melchizedek was clearly greater than, than, than Abraham. One commentator said this, and I'll, I'll just read this out here. Abraham gives him, you know, a tenth of the booty of the spoils, you know. Maybe it's shields, armor. I don't know what you got in that century. I don't know what was the, the booty, whatever that was. Maybe bags of gold. I don't know, Spanish doubloons. I don't know. They get him a tenth of this stuff. And he blesses Abraham in kind. But Abraham gives him a tenth, and then Melchizedek blesses him. Again, that's a very priestly sort of thing, right? It's a very, very priestly thing. And, and then when you look at the name Melchizedek, it's an interesting name, right? I think last week we kind of, tongue-in-cheek, called him, you know, Rumpelstiltskin. It's, a, it's an interesting name. And it comes from ancient, ancient Canaanite language. So Melchizedek is like an old Canaanite name, meaning my king is God, or my king is righteousness, it's, 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 it's very similar to what we get in Hebrew. So we're getting even farther, farther back now, creating more mystery for me. And Salem, of which he is said to be king, may be even, again, Jerusalem. So we go back, 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 and we get these very messianic terms around this priest, Melchizedek. You know, king of peace, Shalom. We get this idea of the, the king of righteousness. Those sounding very much like Jesus. Isn't that interesting? 
So what do we do about this Melchizedek guy? Now, Genesis 14 is where you find him. Also Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is, is what they call a messianic psalm. It's like a song written, and many of the, the, the attributes of Jesus kind of wind up in that psalm. Psalm 110, if you're really good, find that real quick. And this is like a, what they call a royal psalm, kind of a, a psalm about the king. And, uh, and we find this mention of Melchizedek, and a, and a royal psalm, and, and it, it was used in the first century by early Christians to, to exalt Jesus as the royal king and priest. And so we have a couple of places in Scripture that we, we read about this. Some of you know that there was a pretty famous find, I think in the 1960s. And the story goes, I think a boy's throwing rocks, and he throws some rocks, and he hits pottery. Are you familiar with the story? I'm not sure. That may be urban, urban legend. I could just take that as it is. I just, I'm coming off of, of memory here. But we find these scrolls that were in clay pots. And later they were titled the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, some of those scrolls were written by some of the early Jewish enclaves, early tribes. Some lived in the desert. Some people think that some of those are from the Essenes, which are one of those, those groups. Most people, when they read the scriptures, they hear about the Pharisees, right, and the Sadducees, but there were more. Well, we get a hint of that. Because one of Jesus' own disciples was known as a, anybody? Zealot. That was also kind of another group. But we don't you know, get a lot of that in Scripture. We don't hear about the Essenes. But apparently they were kind of a, an enclave and they really loved John the Baptist. And they wrote several things and some of them were just copies of, of what we already have of the Old Testament. But in one of those, it talks about Melchizedek. And the speculation is... Uh, that possibly he was this angelic being. This is a fun fact for you, okay? Angelic being. And, and later, philosopher uh, Philo provides this kind of this allegorical interpretation of him as the logos or defined reason or the defined word. Divine reason, divine. So interesting that people have speculated. But here's the thing, here's another fun fact. That the writer pointed out there. Most priests were from, does anybody know what the tribe in ancient Israel was that the priestly line was supposed to come from? Anybody? Where the pants? Levites, right? Actually, these aren't Levites. Anyway, bad idea. If I'm going to use that illustration, I should have Levites on, really. But uh, Levites from the first priest, who was actually Moses' brother, named Aaron, Right? Aaron was a Levite, and so I guess technically that would mean Moses a Levite. Anyway, I never really thought about that. But so that was the line that the official priesthood was supposed to come from. Now, what line did the writer remind us that Jesus is from? The line of Judah. That wasn't a priestly line. So something supernatural had to occur for him to be a true priest. Now, that's connected to Melchizedek. Melchizedek came before any Abraham line. I mean, Isaac hadn't even been born yet. There was no bloodline from Abraham that would include this tribe of Levi to have an official priesthood line. So Melchizedek and Jesus, kind of similar, were not from the official priesthood tribes. 
Well, Melchizedek, again, there's area of speculation. I mean, the writer says he didn't have a, an origin story, and we don't have kind of much after, like we don't know when he died. So there's some speculation here. Some of you are already like getting excited about this stuff. This stuff interests me because I think sometimes, again, we've said this before, I'm okay with mystery. I'm okay with not knowing everything. You know, there's some mystery, and I think sometimes we just live with the tension. Live with the tension. So this guy, Melchizedek, here's another fun fact. He is the first individual to be given the title in Hebrew of priest, Kohen. Now, why is that important? We just talked about it. He wasn't from the line of Levi. There's all kinds of things going on here. So that's fun fact. When you're at work on Monday, you're around the water cooler. Do they have those anymore? You can share these fun facts with your friends. Uh, so Melchizedek, what do we do with this guy? Well, really the writer, what they're trying to do here, what the writer's trying to do is tell you, hey, there's a connection between the kind of office that Melchizedek held, uh, which was, you know, kind of over and above the law, and what Jesus did, who was also the fulfillment of all the law. So these two kind of held some kind of similarities here. And, and Melchizedek is kind of this, this precursor, this foreshadow of the way that God was going to accomplish something. Law would never do it. People just can't do it. You can't even do it for a month, a week, a day. I can't even do it for an hour. We can't do it. The law would never do this dealing with our moral conscience. We just, we want to do the right thing, but we struggle. We struggle. And, and what God was wanting to do is foreshadowed in Melchizedek. Way before any nation of Israel, way before Abraham had a child, and later Moses brought all the people out of, the, you know, out of Egypt, out of slavery, way before all of that, Melchizedek is a foreshadow of how God is going to accomplish something amazing, something supernatural, something so much bigger than anything that the law could ever do. The law just wasn't going to cut it. And, and the writer tells us Jesus is like this ultimate high priest that doesn't need a tabernacle, a tent, doesn't need a temple. He supersedes all of that. He's like, he's like the one who comes through the heavens and takes care of it. God himself, in other words, had to deal with our big problem, sin. Moral law, sacrifices, offerings could never do it. Now pause for a second. Again, why is the writer spending all this time comparing what Jesus did for us and then this, these, these Old Testament priests and then Melchizedek? What is the, the writer trying to do? Remember, we think that the audience that this was originally addressed to was possibly former priests. Former Jewish priests who were considering ditching it all. Going back to comfort. Going back to the way things always were. So they were, they were wrestling with, should we continue this, Jesus? This just, just seems too easy. Or, or maybe, on the other hand, it seems too hard. Jesus did this for us? Nah, we, need to, we, need to, we need to buckle up. They were, they, were, they were wondering whether they should go back. And so the writer's working really hard here to, to, to pull out all the stops. He's better than angels. He's God's final word. We found that in chapter one. He's better than any angelic being. 
put Michael, all of them together. He's better than all of them. He's even better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. And he's better than Melchizedek, who was better than Abraham. Do you see what he's trying to do, the writer? He or she, I'm not really sure. But you can see what the writer's trying to do. Jesus is God's final word. And it's like you could just go back to chapter 1. First four verses once again. He's better than all of this. Better than Abraham. Not that Abraham was a bad guy. But even before it all happened, like the order of Melchizedek, Jesus is greater than all of that. Remember now, again, if you were, if you were a good boy and girl back in Jewish Sunday school, you learned about Abraham. You know, in fact, I remember in Sunday school, we had a song. Anybody remember this song? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father. I mean, we're, we're Christians. We're not even Jewish. And we know that song, right? We know that song. It's our history. It's just part of that, that line. And so we know Abraham was important. In fact, the scripture says, I think he's the only one that scripture ever says he's a friend of God. That's a big deal. Right? I mean, God said, hey, Moses, he, who, is, who, is, who is faithful like my, my servant Moses? We, we know that he said that about Moses. But Abraham's called a friend of God. We even have a song that we sing about that. Abraham was a big deal. And yet, this obscure guy in the Old Testament named Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Why? Because the law just could not do it. Because we are sinful people and we needed something better than that. And that's the whole point of the entire thing of Hebrews. We just couldn't do it. Some of you are new to the Bible and that's great. You're new to the Old Testament. There's a lot of stories back there. And most of it is not our jam. Because it was this whole deal of the law. And the people just couldn't do it. Try as they might. They might muster it for a while, but they just couldn't do it. Sounds a lot like us. We start the day, we're excited. Jesus reigns. I'm going to get my time with the Lord in. About noon, you're starting to waver. By the time you get to the afternoon, you're not even sure who you are anymore. This is our human condition. We needed something better than the law. You know, one of the other letters or pieces of scripture in the New Testament is is this uh, letter or this, this, this message to the Romans. And in Romans chapter 7, one of the early church leaders, a guy named Paul, who met Jesus in a powerful way, he, he grew up understanding all the Jewish system and was, on, it was in line to be the next big rabbi. This, this guy, Paul, wrote in Romans 7. He said... Uh, This sin thing, I see the good I ought to do, but I struggle. I see what I should do. It makes sense to me. But the flesh is a battle. The only winner of that battle is Jesus. You've got to have Jesus. That's the only winner of the battle. Thanks be to God is how he ends that chapter. Thanks be to God that we have a solution so priests, why would you ever go back to a system that can never make you holy? It's never, gonna, it's never even going to help your conscience. Not even going to move the needle. Not going to help you. Those demands were too much. I love what one of the study Bibles that I read, and 
If you don't have a study Bible, by the way, it's, it's a good purchase. It's well worth your, your money. I love the English Standard uh, Study Bible. One of the study Bibles I read, I can't remember which one, said that, uh, you know, look, the Old Testament system and law and priesthood, you know, it's holy and good, but not able to make right those who sin by breaking it. Nor can it give the power necessary to fulfill its demands. We just can't do it. It's, just, it's, it, it's incapable of, of helping us. You see, what Jesus did was a once-for-all deal. The writer tells us that, reminds us that in verse 27 here. We read it. Once and for all, Christ ends the daily, endless repetition of sacrificing for sin. See, we'll talk about this next week, so please make plans to be here, because I want to take you through a day in the life of a typical priest in Israel. And you will just be floored by the kind of work that these folks had to do every day. Why? Why did they have to do it? Sin. Every day. And sometimes, baby's born. Got to sacrifice. New child. Got to be dedicated. New priest. Got to be dedicated. I'll take you through a day in the life. But listen, they could never do it. Jesus offers a once-for-all deal. And he didn't offer an animal, he offers himself. On that darn thing that I can't even imagine carrying. Nailed that cross. I just can't, that, that kind of love is just, I can't get it. I can't, I can't get my mind around it. That's why we have communion every Sunday, by the way. We got to come back to ground one, square one right here. Why he did that for us, I, I can't get it. I don't. But that is what we need. The law couldn't do it. And the writer is trying to tell these priests, these former priests who had decided to follow Jesus, but now they were wavering. He's saying, no, 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 no. You don't want to go back. Jesus is greater than all the greats of the Old Testament. And he was God's plan to deal with sin. In other words, and this is going to be big, Jesus Christ set aside the law, as well as the whole Levitical priesthood. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ set the law aside, as well as the whole Levitical priesthood. That's, that's a, a tremendous change. We don't get that because we didn't, many of us, we didn't grow up Jewish. We don't, that wasn't, a, that wasn't our jam, but this was a powerful thing that he did. Everything changed or should change. And he set aside the whole thing. In other words, the old covenant with the Hebrew people and nation of Israel is no longer in effect. If this is how you grew up, that's hard to swallow. The whole system. But I got to, tomorrow, Monday, I got to make a set. I, this, this all ended. Now, if you know world history, it literally had to end at 70 AD. Because at that point, the Roman government was done with Israel. They had had it. And much as Jesus predicted himself, every stone was broken apart. 
Literally, the nation was done with worship. But Jesus had already done it 30 years before. Jesus alone saves. The the covenant was no longer in effect. All of those priests, and remember the writer saying, look, these priests, I mean, they, they had a shelf life. I mean, they lived for a while, and I think once you turn 50, uh, you're done, which is crazy because many of us, like, I'm approaching 50. I'm like, I don't want to be done. But in the Old Testament, you know, at certain points, your age meant you're done. You had forced retirement. You can no longer be a priest anymore. You're, you're done. And then they had the next guy or the next guy, and then those guys died, and then we had to get the, the priesthood was this constant deal. Many, many priests. Jesus is one. And that one priest ended that whole deal. Those priests were temporary. Jesus is permanent and eternal. That's what the writer reminds us. All of these things, and we're going to contrast that more next weekend because the writer's really going to go after it. But Jesus took care of it. The old law fell short, period. Couldn't do it. Not that it was bad. It just was ineffective in helping our moral conscience, in saving us, dealing with our sin once and for all. And God knew that well in advance. Jesus brought a new covenant much better and so much for humanity. Here's the deal. Here's, let's, let's just bring it down to you and I. How, how does Jesus' once and for all sacrifice change everything for you? Just think about that. What is this one once and for all sacrifice Everything covered, every wrong you've done, past, present, today, and future, wiped away at the cross. What does that do for you? How does that change us? Or how should it change us? How should it change how we operate? What does that do for your your self-image, your security, your anxiety, your hunger for life? You are so much more loved than you could possibly imagine, even though we are so much more sinful than we will ever admit. That's Tim Keller. I love that phrase. How does it change you? How does Jesus' once and for all sacrifice change everything for you? You are secure, you are loved, and you have a future and a hope, and God has stuff that he wants you to be part of right now. There are things that God has gifted you with. He wants you to move the mission forward. Your sins are taken care of on the cross. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, I bet he had a big smile on his face. Did it. That hurt. I don't know what he said. I don't know what Hebrew is. He spoke Aramaic, I think. But can you imagine that feeling? Like, did he say that? Nobody was looking. Yes. I prayed really hard to God before that. I really didn't want to go through that. But I did it. The victory is won. How does that change your hunger for life? Here's the only point today. If you've got, a, if you've got your notes, put it, get it ready. I use Evernote on my phone. Uh, but I love this. Today, Jesus is the better covenant built on better promises. He's the better covenant built on better promises. You can be good. Some of you are better than me. You might tip the needle a little bit but it's never going to do it. Your conscience is never going to be satisfied. It has to be Jesus. It's a better covenant built on better promises. Jesus is the eternal priest of a different order who does his work in the heavenly realm. 
that's your Savior. If you've never come to Jesus, this could be your day. If you've never made him king and priest over your life, Savior and Lord, you can do that today. Come talk to anybody up here who have never done that. If you've never said, I'm all in, you've never been baptized, you can do that today. Ah, just take him as your priest who said the better covenant on better promises. Imagine if we stopped pretending around here that we could muster good stuff on our own, that we could somehow willpower it. It's ineffective. You know that it's ineffective. What if we could just help people discover the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus and we don't have to bicker about stuff that doesn't matter we don't need a better religion. We don't need a bigger and better set of rules, a better get saved scheme. We just need Jesus, the better covenant on better promises. Would you pray? Lord, we come before you. We thank you for the better covenant on better promises. We thank you for Jesus who loves us more than we could possibly imagine. Oh, Lord, even though we're more sinful than we even want to pray about. But God, I pray that you'd stir each heart in this room that we would leave this place changed because the power of your word and the power of Jesus. Thanks be to you, Father, for a plan of salvation that worked itself way before Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and that you have a better covenant for us built on Jesus, built on better promises. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.